Uh, thanks for having me out here this morning. I, if you got your Bible, why don't you turn to Second uh, Timothy, chapter four? That's where we're going to be. We're going to start reading in verse one. Um, as most of you probably know, Second Timothy is written to Timothy uh, by Paul. Paul had sent Timothy to uh, the city of Ephesus to take over and to lead the church and uh, the work going on in Ephesus. Okay. And he's having a lot of problems. And so Paul sends off this letter, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. This one happens to be the last letter we have from the Apostle Paul. He's in prison at this point when he writes it. Very possible that this is written days, if not hours, before his death. So we're reading here the very last words of the Apostle Paul to Timothy. So it's kind of infused with a certain urgency but let's let's start in uh, verse one of chapter four, and I want to read down through. Uh, looks like eight. I got uh, and a New Living Translation here, so here we go. Paul says, "I solemnly urge you, in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who will someday judge the living and, and the dead when He appears to set up His kingdom, preach the word of God. Be prepared, whether the time is favorable or not. Patiently correct." Rebuke and encourage your people with good teaching for a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They'll reject the truth and chase after myths, but you should keep a clear mind in every situation. Don't be afraid of suffering for the Lord. Work at telling others the good news and fully carry out the ministry that God has given to you. Or fulfill your ministry. As for me, my life has already been poured out as an offering to God. The time of my death is near. I've fought the good fight. I've now finished the race. And I've remained faithful. And now the prize awaits me. The crown of righteousness. Which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. And the prize is not just for me. But for all who eagerly look forward to his appearing. All right. Second Timothy 4. Great passage to get into. So much we could delve into there. Um, a great passage for us as leaders and fellow leaders to look at for a few moments here together. Because Paul's speaking as one leader to another, Timothy. And I wanted to focus on that a little bit here this, this weekend with you guys. Is leadership for the long term. How to become leaders that are going to last for the long term. Paul, as, you, as we read through this passage, you notice he goes through a whole series of exhortations that he's giving to Timothy. Endure hardship. Embrace the suffering that comes from serving Christ. Uh, do the work of an evangelist, sharing the good news. We could talk a lot about those. The one I want to focus on is this last one here. Timothy, fully carry out the ministry that God has given to you or fulfill your ministry. That's what I want to talk about. Paul, when he when he talked about his own ministry, when he thought about and wrote about his own ministry, he often likened it to a race or a course that he had to run. There was this course that God had laid out in front of him and he had to run it. He had to complete it. And the way he describes it, it's almost like a uh, what do they call that race? The steeplechase where you have to jump over creeks and go over obstacles. And there's long stretches where you just have to gut it out. And it's tedious and you just have to endure and it's grueling. 
That's the picture Paul paints of his ministry and that there's this race, this course that God had laid out for him. That's that's what he said there in, uh, where is it, verse 7, where he says, uh, I fought the good fight and I've now finished the race. I've completed the course. So as he writes this, he's right in front of the finish line. All he's got to do is step over and then there's nothing except the reward. That's going to be a cool day for each one of us. But just before he does, he turns in this passage back to Timothy. And he says, Timothy, fulfill your ministry. God has given you a race to run, a course. Don't ever lose sight of that. Don't take your eye off that. Focus, endure, and fulfill the ministry that God has given to you. Complete. So what I want to talk about this morning is um, the doctrine of God's election. Not as it pertains to salvation. I'm sure people have different views on that. Fine. That's not what we're going to talk about. The doctrine of election as it pertains to ministry, your ministry, and leadership. The notion that God uh, chooses leaders. God chooses spiritual leaders and that you have a certain ministry or a course laid out before you to fulfill. God has designed a ministry for you to fulfill. So as I've uh, thought and uh, done some reading on these three, these things, a couple of things became evident. Let's, let's go on a few more slides here. Uh, next one. Here's the things I want to talk about this morning. First of all, that God, not man, has ultimately called or elected you as a leader. We'll talk about that next. That God often calls the person who doesn't feel quite cut out for that role. Often that's the person that God puts his hand on. And then the last thing we want to talk about next there is that God has set before each one of us a ministry of good works that he prepared long beforehand that we should walk in them. Okay, so we'll talk about each one of these. Let's go on one more here. First, and I think this is probably the most important point, is that God is the one who chooses individuals for roles of spiritual leadership. The word of commission the one who declared you a leader or gave you some position of leadership, uh, I'm sure you can point to a certain person or a certain organization. But ultimately and truly, that decision came from God. And what I want to do just for a few minutes here together is kind of survey some scripture on this and some examples from the scripture where it's certainly not exhaustive. But let's look at this. First of all, Moses, you guys remember the story of Moses at the burning bush standing there and God needed someone to lead the nation of Israel out of Egypt. And so he comes to Moses, says, I want you. I want you. He, he was the one that God had selected. Now, there may have been a lot of other people that were more capable than Moses. Very possible. Who had stronger gifting in different areas. There were certainly other people that God had used in a powerful way. If you remember the story where uh, Miriam and Aaron challenged Moses' authority and his right to lead, one of the questions they asked was, hasn't God also spoken through us? And they were right. He had. But all that mattered was the fact that God had chosen Moses. 
God's selection was the thing that mattered. And that's the reason why Moses was able to stand throughout his whole life. Next. Uh, here's your favorite Old Testament character in mind, Bezalel. Probably haven't heard of him, but if you read in Exodus chapter 36, you find that Moses goes to Bezalel and commissions him as the chief artisan for the building of the tabernacle. Okay. Uh, so Bezalel gets this word of commission. He gets to work. He's probably tempted to think that the reason why he was selected for that role, given that great responsibility, was because Moses thought he'd be good for that, that it was an act of human will. But the scriptures for us pull the curtain back and we see more. Look at, uh, give me one more. Look at what uh, God had said to Moses prior to that. He comes to Moses and says, look, I have specifically chosen Bezalel, son of Uri. I have filled him with the spirit of God, giving him great wisdom, ability and expertise in all kinds of crafts. God said to Moses, that's the guy I want you to choose. I've gifted him for this. I've created him for this. I've put my spirit upon you. Now, Moses, you go get him to do the work. Go commission him. Did Bezalel understand that? It's not clear. But the fact of the matter was God had chosen him. Next example is David. Uh, give us the verse on that. How many times did God tell David this? I have to remind him of this. David, remember this. You were nothing but a shepherd. You were just a shepherd until what happened? I called you and I selected you to be the leader of my people, Israel. Next one, Peter, James, John, really all the apostles. Christ comes to them and says, you didn't choose me. I chose you. And incidentally, when they had to pick a disciple to replace Judas, whose hands did they put that into? God's. Next. Paul oh, Paul's an extraordinary example. Yeah. But a good one, a good one. Remember when Paul had been struck blind and, and the Lord comes to Ananias and says, I want you to go to Saul and heal him. One of the things that Christ says is, go to Saul, for he is my chosen instrument. He's the instrument of my choosing, and I have a work for him. And Paul understood this very well. We see later uh, in Acts 20 here, Paul says this. He says, I don't consider my life of any account as dear to myself. So that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel, of the grace of God. So we, we look at that list there and we might think, OK, well, those are some pretty extraordinary players in God's redemptive plan. And that's true. That's true. However, when we delve even deeper into the New Testament and we start looking at the cases of even leaders at the local church level, leaders in a certain church in Ephesus or in Colossae or what have you. All different types of leaders, great and small, we see the same thing. Look at this. Uh, one more. Let's get the verse on that. For the leaders oops, go back one, the leaders of the church at F or uh, oh, we need to go backwards. We went way too far backwards, backwards. I don't know if we can go backwards. Yeah, closer. Ah, beautiful. The Ephesian elders, leaders of just a local church at Ephesus, what are they told? Keep watch over yourselves and uh, all the flock of which 
the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. It's his decision. Uh, next, the example of Archippus. Uh, many of us may have not even have heard of Archippus. He just mentioned once or twice in the New Testament. All we know about him is he's a faithful brother in the church at Colossae. And yet, what's he told? Be sure to fulfill the ministry that the Lord gave to you. Uh, one more, Timothy. Well, we just read about Timothy in our passage where he's told the same thing. And Timothy's kind of an interesting example, okay? Because let's, let's think about his case. Timothy, he had uh, traveled with Paul, seen a lot of things with Paul, and at some point, Paul commissioned him, sent him to Ephesus to lead the church there. Been sent to Ephesus by Paul. And that was a pretty rough gig. That was pretty rough. Uh, outside the church in Ephesus, there was always the potential for persecution, even mob violence that could kick up at any moment. You see that when you read through the book of Acts. That's a very real danger. And now Timothy steps in and he becomes the lightning rod for that kind of persecution as the leader of that church. Uh, inside the church, there were false teachers that were deeply entrenched in that community and were persuasive and articulate. So often when you read uh, the New Testament, you hear about false teachers, you kind of get this picture in your mind of these guys with like, cloaks on and they're kind of hunched over and creeping around and they have fangs or something bloodshot eyes false teachers uh, if we could be teleported back to those churches almost certainly that's not what we'd see It'd be really interesting if we did see that but i don't think that's what it was these guys were very well liked relationally, their roots were deep into these communities and people would listen to them. And many of them were like, it makes a lot of sense what he says. I like him. Why else were they getting such a huge following? And now Timothy has to go in there and root this teaching out. It was poison that these people were being fed. And if these guys wouldn't repent, he also had to root them out, too. What else? He had to appoint elders, leaders that would take this church on for years to come. Huge responsibility. Had to determine the fair treatment of the widows. That was another volatile situation. He was responsible to teach the word and provide moral guidance in a city that was steeped in uh, sexuality, paganism. And to top it all off, Paul now says, I'm about to die and I'm going to leave you alone. And so the task of guarding apostolic true teaching falls on Timothy's shoulders. It's as if he's in, in a tug of war match and it's close and everybody's sweating. But Timothy knows behind him he's got this 300 pound hulk as the anchor. Paul and he's got the rope wrapped around his waist. But then at some point he gets a tap on his shoulder. And although he's still holding with one arm, he starts wrapping the rope around Timothy's waist saying, I got to go. And he knows as soon as he lets go, the full weight is coming on me. I become the anchor. You can imagine. After living in that environment for several months or a year, after fighting some of those battles, Timothy's starting to think, hey, Paul, thanks a lot for sending me here. Now I see why you didn't take this up yourself. 
right? Probably. Very easy to start accusing at this point. But what does Paul write to Timothy in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy? Timothy, remember the prophecies spoken about you long ago. Remember that? It was clear that was not from anyone but God himself. And remember what he said about you and about your role. Remember that. And in our passage, he says, Timothy, I I speak to you now as if I'm standing in the presence of God and Jesus Christ himself. And I exhort you, fulfill your ministry. In other words, who had sent Timothy to Ephesus? Paul or God? Timothy, this is what you were made for. To be God's man, even in an ugly and a difficult situation, just like this. Especially in a situation just like this. So fulfill your ministry. Scripture teaches that leaders, both great and small, New Testament and old, were chosen by God and been given specific ministries by God. And we find believers in the New Testament church uh, reminding each other of this and encouraging each other with these words. Press on. Because why? This isn't your plan. It's not my plan. This is the all-wise Father's plan. He knows what He's doing. And they drew such uh, confidence from that. Such confidence. Too bad that, oh, we need that question back up there. Too bad that God doesn't operate that way anymore, huh? But that's just a New Testament way that God operated. I don't think so. I think God operates on the exact same principle today. Who made you a leader? Who entrusted you with a a flock or a ministry? On what authority do you stand as a leader in God's kingdom? Is it because somebody else thought you'd be good at this? Or is that it's a very important question? Very important to think through. Sure, you can always point to uh, a person who invested in you or maybe said, boy, I think this person would be great for this, or maybe someone who actually laid hands on you or an organization. We can all point to that, just as Timothy could point to Paul or Bezalel could point to Moses. But we're ignoring the clear message of Scripture if we fail to acknowledge the actual source of that decision. That somewhere deep in the mind of God, In the midst of some divine counsel, as he mulled over some aspect of his kingdom plan. And he had a group of sheep that had no shepherd. A name came forth from the mind of God. Your name. Your name. That God laid his eye on you and said, he is the one I want. She is the one I want. I have, a, I have sheep. I have these sheep. And they, their lives are very, diff, are very complicated. Very complicated. And sometimes they don't listen. They're stubborn. 
and uh, their lives are really messy to get involved with. But the thing is, that's why I call them sheep, because it's hopeless that they'll ever find their way if they don't have a shepherd. And a name comes forth. Who could I send? And your name comes forth from the mind of God. There's really such a need for this conviction on the part of a leader that I have been commissioned by God and I have a ministry to fulfill. It brings confidence, uh, as we were saying earlier, that this is the all-wise Father's plan, not mine. Go on one, one more here. <clears throat> if, we, if we fail to have this conviction or build that conviction into our hearts, we start to think this, next one, that I'm a leader because good but fallible people thought I'd be able to do this. They're good people, but they make mistakes. And uh, boy, I've felt this way at different points, put in charge of a small Bible study or something. You start feeling like, I don't know what I'm doing. These problems are too big for me to handle. I feel like I'm I've got this image of a leader out there and people are buying it. But sooner or later, they're going to find out uh-uh. uh, on, on what basis do we lead? For, for me, for many years at one point, it felt like I was, uh, the best way I can describe it, I was like standing on completely slippery ice in my ministry. I couldn't get my feet uh, to make a stand for God. Uh, and it all stemmed right back to this right here. Who had called me? Who'd commissioned me for that work? Next one. Well, maybe I'm a leader because I rashly maneuvered myself into a position to lead. There was some uh, one point at which, yeah, I can do that. I should do that. And then we actually get the position of leadership. And after a while, we're like, oops, uh, maybe I should have thought twice about that. Next one. That I'm a leader because I just happen to be the next in line or the oldest one or the most extroverted or whatever. You could fill in the blank there. But that's why I was chosen as a leader. Well. There may be some truth to those things. Some of those may, may be true. Timothy, I'm sure, could point to some of those, and there'd be uh, some truth in that. Okay? But think about, let's think about the case of Joseph in the Old Testament, okay? Joseph, who was sold into slavery by his brothers, taken to Egypt. You know the story. Why was Joseph... Sent to Egypt. Who sent Joseph to Egypt? Well, on one level, yes, it was his brothers because of what they did. But notice what Joseph says. Go one more here. Uh, Joseph says, I'm Joseph, your brother. This is at the end of his life. And he's talking to his brothers whom you sold into slavery. That was your choice. But don't be upset and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. God has sent me here ahead of you down in eight. So it was God who sent me here, not you. And he's the one who made me an advisor to Pharaoh. Joseph had come to realize as mysterious as it is, as it is, I can't explain it. Somehow God knew exactly what he was doing, despite all the human ins and outs and choices that people had made. God had made that choice. God had sent him there. 
Why are you a leader? God wants you as a leader. And the exciting implications of this are, uh, I threw a few of them up here. First of all, the confidence that that can bring. Because again, this is not your plan. This is, this is the way God wants it. He wants you in the position you have. At least for now. Someday he might lead you to something else. But for now, you're the one he wants right there. Secondly, that we can have hope even in the face of failure. And we're all going to fail miserably at different points in our midst. That's, that's the way leadership is. There is real moral failure. There are times when we make decisions in our ministry that are disastrous and it's our fault. But the great thing is that God, even after that, if we turn back to him, will grant us further callings. He'll grant us another role. Even if we've blown one, he's so merciful and gracious. John Mark in the New Testament. Remember, he abandoned Paul and Barnabas. Just uh, wimped out and abandoned them. Later in his life, though, we see him reunited with Paul with a vital ministry in some of these churches. And also this. Who's to say what failure really is? How do you know what you're looking at as failure? I'm sure standing around the cross on that day, it looked like an utter, utter collapse and a failure. This is all it's come to right here. This guy got slaughtered. All his followers have scattered. Was that a failure? Paul being put in prison for two years. Such a powerful minister, and yet he's sidelined. Is that a failure? Or is that exactly what God wanted? That somehow in his wisdom, he took something that looked so ugly on a human level, that looked like there was no way any good could come out of this, and God accomplishes exactly what he wanted to through that. What you look at as failure might just be a stretch of the course that God has for you to run. And so there's such hope that it brings. What else? Uh, it's an opportunity for everybody, even, even those who come to Christ late in life. I find that uh, God often uses the experiences people have even before they come to Christ to prepare them for their later ministry. If they turn to him. What? Moses didn't even start his ministry until he was 80 years old, right? Next. And this, that the, the Bible speaks of both a corporate and an individual calling. There's some verses where it's clear when he talks about God has called you. He's speaking in a corporate or, or a large sense of saying you all as believers or you all as young life leaders, you've all been called to fulfill this ministry of reaching young people for Christ. So I don't want us to get the impression that this course this ministry that God's got for you is just a lone ranger thing that you're on your own and you've got to complete it. The cool thing is God brings other people right alongside at every step of the way so that accomplishing God's will is something we do together. He always brings others right alongside who are going to help us accomplish our course and we do the same for them. Isn't it great to be able to serve together? 
draw such strength from that. All right. Second point, then. I got just two more. These that was the most important one. But here's here's some other ones that God often calls when he selects somebody. He selects the unlikely person, the person that doesn't feel quite cut out for it. Yes, Timothy, we could think about his example. Um, He's young when he's put in charge of this church. He's a young guy. Um, He Paul refers to his frequent ailments. He was always getting sick. He wasn't that confident. He was real shy. In fact, in uh, what is it? First Corinthians 16, Timothy's going to Corinth and Paul has to write to the Corinthians when he shows up. Don't intimidate him. It's a real passive, shy guy. And you think, uh, you know, okay, there's Timothy. And then you have the situation in Ephesus and the pillar that that calls for the type of leader that that needs. And Timothy's not the first one I would choose. And yet, what else does Paul say about him? He says, there's nobody else like him. There's nobody else like Timothy. You can pick at him. You can find weaknesses with him, sure. But there's nobody I know of who uh, what matters to Christ matters to them more than Timothy. Next one. Why does God call that type of person like me? And maybe like some of you, because when the victory comes, it's going to be all the more evident that it was God's grace and power that got the job done. Maybe that's the role that God has for you, that when victory comes, everybody looks and says, wow, that must have been God. (laughs) That's cool. That's a great role to play. Paul said the same thing. Look at what he says uh, about himself. I think I put this one up here. Yeah. First, Timothy, he tells us to sit. Timothy, he says, God had mercy on me, a blasphemer, a persecutor, oh, the worst of sinners. Why? So that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst sinners. Then others will realize that they, too, can believe in him and receive eternal life. Paul knew a great part of the reason why God had chosen him was because people were going to look at him and think, if God can be that patient with him, if somebody like him can receive mercy from God, there's hope for me. Sometimes that's the role God has for us. Let's go uh, two more here and let's skip that one. Secondly, another reason why God calls this type of person is because he knows something about you that other people don't. In fact, something that you might not know. He might know things about you that you aren't even aware of. You know, we talk a lot. I'm sure in your Bible studies and in your teachings, you guys talk a lot about the fact that we can't do anything with true significance, with eternal impact, apart from God's power. But that's the only way we can do that. And that is absolutely true. Right on. On the other hand, there's a reason why God has chosen you for your role and not another. God knows that if you stand up and begin to exercise the gifting that you have that he's given to you. 
and you begin to exercise your creativity and your leadership, that his kingdom will move forward exactly as he wants it to. If you stand up and do that, it'll accomplish exactly what he wants to get done. Think about Moses back there at the burning bush again. Okay, if you remember that story, God's calling him. I want you to go speak before Pharaoh. I want you to deliver my people. He's got this big role for him. And Moses gives him all these excuses why he's not cut out for that. He's not the right man for the job. People won't believe me. Uh, I'm not in good shape, whatever. He gives him all these different excuses. Finally, he comes to uh, one. What does he say? God, I can't do this because I'm not a good speaker. I don't I don't talk well. My, my words get all mixed up and I get tongue tied. Me, no good talk. God, right? Me, no good talking. And uh, God's response is so profound. His response three words, a three word question. Moses. Who makes mouths? Who makes mouths? So that they can speak eloquently or well or not. Who gives people that gift, Moses? Who makes mouths? And I'm sure he let that question kind of hover there in the silence as the fire crackled for a few minutes. And Moses sat there thinking and he starts putting the dots together. All right, that's clearly that would be God who does that. Yes. And that's him right here speaking to me. And he wants me to go open my mouth. We could interpret that passage to be saying that God was going to give Moses an ability he didn't have miraculously. And God could do that. That may be the case. But I don't think so. Because what we're told in Acts 7 is that Moses was raised in Egypt as a man of power in speech and in action. In other words, what was God saying to Moses? Moses, cut the crap. I know you. I made you. I made your mouth. I've been with you your entire life. I've overseen the whole thing. I know you. And you know what? You can speak. In fact, you can speak very well. I don't make mistakes, Moses. And you're the one I want. And I'm going to be with you every step of the way. And when you open your mouth, I'll give you the words to say. But Moses, I want you to stand up and open your mouth. God knows you. God knows you better than you know yourself. He created you. And there may be some things that God calls on you to do that you are perfectly suited for, but you don't even realize it yet. And the only way to discover that is by stepping out in faith and trusting God in that way. There's a reason why God has chosen you for the role that you have. He knows you. He's with you every step of the way. Last one. Uh, yes, this last point that God has set before you a ministry of good works. 
that you should walk in them. Of course, this comes from Ephesians 2.10, where it says that we're his workmanship or his masterpiece. Uh, created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared long beforehand so that we would walk in them. All right. Now, it doesn't say here that God's ever going to make it completely clear what the course he has is for you. That's never been my experience. I always feel like God maybe shows the next step, sometimes not even that. He points the direction and you just kind of kind of go. So I don't think it's a, it's a case where God is going to lay it out clearly, maybe for some people. That hasn't been my experience. And I don't think we have to get all mm, worried and anxious about, you know, how specific uh, God's plan is and that I might miss it or step outside of it. All we need to focus on is being willing to do whatever he hands to us. That's your job. To bring myself where I can honestly say I'm willing to do whatever is in the hand of God as he extends it to me. He's your good shepherd. It's his job to guide you and to get you where you should go. All right. So we don't need to get all tied up in knots about that sort of thing. But what this verse does talk about is good works. That there's good works that he's prepared beforehand for you to accomplish. And, you know, when you hear that phrase, good works, uh, different things probably come to mind. Serving the poor, uh, helping someone who's in need or leading someone to Christ, maybe at camp this summer. Yes, definitely good works. But what were the good works that God had prepared for Timothy? To lead a church in a field that was difficult, maybe even not that responsive. A good work. To stand toe-to-toe with intimidating heretics. A good work. To continue preaching the word, whether it was getting the right response or not. A good work. A good work is not just something that makes me feel warm, but it's something that pleases God. What are the good works that God has prepared for you these days? That God's laid out before you? And do you agree with God that those are good works? Those are good. All right. Let's wrap it up then. Therefore, if all that's true, that's true. A couple verses here. First of all, therefore, let us each run with endurance the race that God has set before us. We're going to talk about that a little bit more tomorrow. Hebrews 12. It's going to take endurance to run that race. Secondly, therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and his choosing you. And the verb there is not make certain, like make God certain or make other people certain. It's make yourself certain. Get that conviction that this is God's doing. And, la- and the last one there, that we each need to know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That's his promise. Since you have been, since God knows you, he created you and he knows you, good and bad, all of it. Since he has placed each member of the body of Christ where he desires, it says, just as he wants it, since that's true of you, since 
despite knowing all of your shortcomings, God called and commissioned you. Since Christ laid down his life to lay hold of you. All those being true, you stand up, you grab the reins and you lead. You lead for him. It's one thing. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's an amazing thing when a person can come to the point where they can honestly say to God, Lord, I, I trust you. I really trust you. But it's a far more profound thing when God looks at you and says, I trust you. I want you for this. Look what Paul says. This is the thing that seemed to just melt his heart with gratitude. He said that Christ and what? And then appointed me to serve him. It's no small thing, brothers and sisters, when the eye of God lands upon you and he calls you for a role and commissions you. So fulfill your ministry. Fulfill the ministry God's given to you. Tomorrow we're going to talk about Hebrews 12 that explains how we run that race, the course that God has set before us with endurance. Because very, well, it's not that common to find people that make it all the way through. So we'll talk about that more tomorrow.